The Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. May be seated. So I love trying new things, exploring new hobbies, trying new sports, working odd jobs, and traveling to new places. This curiosity of the unknown has led me to undertake for the first time a variety of enterprises, snowboarding, lacrosse, weaving, cross-country road tripping. My enthusiasm for the novel and different even helped me plunge from the world of customer service into the world of theology, transitioning from one career to another. But here's a disclaimer. I like to be good at the new things I try. So when my new ventures don't come relatively easily or don't absolutely light a fire in my heart, my ego is dealt a large blow and I am put through some serious humility therapy. I can think of many examples of when this has happened, but one from just this past summer. I was working as a counselor for a cabin of eight pre-teenage girls. I had never done this before, but my friend Ben, who operated the Christian summer camp, needed some more female staff. And so I volunteered. How hard could it be? Well, let me tell you, it was exhausting. All my knowledge and intelligence that I had acquired after two years of seminary was useless here. The group of girls divided into cliques, and two of them seemed to test my authority and patience in new ways each day. Based on how I saw other counselors working with their cabins, 
I thought I must be doing a terrible job. My pride was heavily wounded. But at the end of the week, on the last night of camp, the girls laid in their bunks and before going to bed, they shared some of their favorite parts about their time that week. And they told me that they loved it when I told them the story of Job as a bedtime devotion. And they told me that for the first time, they felt so close to God during our Bible studies that week. Where my pride had cracked and crumbled, there was room for grace and empathy to enter. There was room for the holy to take hold and in unexpected ways make impacts greater than I could have imagined. It was a humbling experience, to say the least. In that context, the intelligence I had staked my confidence to seemed out of place, lacking depth. And this is not so different from the wisdom of God. Paul tells us in his letter to the people of Corinth that God makes all our intelligence look foolish. And maybe it's because we always seem to miss the point. There's nothing inherently wrong with wisdom, but we always seem to want to use wisdom to move us higher up the ladder, to keep ourselves in control. We think, if only I knew more on a certain subject, if only I can be the smartest one in the room, I will find security I will find power in that. We create narratives and promises in our minds of what will happen when we finally achieve these goals that only really find value in the eyes of our culture. And in order to achieve these goals, we follow a train of logic that may be quite sensible to this world. In fact, society might even praise and affirm the rational trajectories we work for, for our career, for our education, for our social lives and feelings of acceptance in a group. But we, as the church, this body of people baptized into Christ, we are told that it should be different. For although we are living in this world now, our eternal home is with Christ. And the world we belong to in Christ, the one that is radically different from the life we know it now. And Jesus describes this world as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon that really kicks off his ministry. He begins this lengthy dialogue with the verses we heard in our gospel today. The Beatitudes. Beatitude referring to the repetition of the word we heard, blessed. But not blessed in the sense of charmed, lucky, or favored. Here the word might better be translated as content. And according to Jesus, those who the world might pity and look down upon 
Those the world might call dreamers or are naive are blessed. They are content. Now, we may have heard these Beatitudes many times before, and they may feel a little bit like a worn-out Sunday school lesson. Simple, overplayed to the point where they feel a little cliche. But I invite you all to take a minute. Think about how you're feeling right now, this morning, and listen to these Beatitudes once more. I'd even invite you to take a look at them as they're printed in your bulletin. Which one touches you this morning? Which one challenges you? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God offers his wisdom in these Beatitudes, both to challenge and to comfort, in reminding us the peace that occurs when we bind ourselves to God. For God knows just how challenging and isolating this life can be. In this Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, don't fear. I am with you in this journey, and you are with me. In light of our reading from Micah this morning, which ends with the Lord requiring of us to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God, I think the Beatitude that I needed to hear the most was from verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now that's a promise. So often we are criticized for caring so much, for grieving when something wrong happens, for feeling this ache in our gut when an injustice occurs pangs of hunger for the wrong to be righted. It drives us, it ushers us into this momentum. Maybe it's why you're here. The desire to reach out toward God, toward justice, to rid ourselves of the frustration we feel in the face of such injustices of this ward. War, poverty, hate narratives. But the anger we feel in our gut isn't just a symptom to get rid of. And it's definitely not an invitation to violence. Rather, it's an invitation to respond to God's call. Now, when we talk about call, particularly in the church, we might be thinking in terms of vocation or career. In Paul's letter to the people of Corinth, he tells them to consider their own call. But he's not talking about their jobs. He's talking about their call to participate in the way of the cross. Now, when Paul talks about the cross, he's talking about more than the instrument of Jesus' death. 
for Paul. Talking about the cross becomes a way to, in one word, talk about the scandalous manner in which God showed God's unrelenting love for humankind and ultimately conquered death. In one word, we are reminded of the humiliating and degrading way in which the creator of the world sacrificed himself that we might have eternal life and eternal relationship with him. The cross is a symbol of shame and rejection, yes, but also a symbol of transformative victory. And this gospel message of the cross is shocking to people whose values are set on the ways of this world. The people of Corinth were living in a city of businessmen and tradesmen and merchants and tourists, where they all came to find social and economic success. Prosperity and self-promotion were idolized and came in sharp contrast with the scandalous gospel that Paul preached. And this feels not so different from today. Today, where we search for ways to dominate in our fields, to maintain control, and not need to rely on anyone else. But standing at the foot of the cross, we can see outside of ourselves a little bit. Being independent and self-made and self-sufficient sort of lose their meaning when we are reminded of the countercultural and humble way in which God delivered redemption to the world. For God calls us to participate in the ways of the cross by centering our lives around loving service to others. God calls us to walk with him as he leads us toward the justice that we ache for. Now we can play into the powers of the world, but they mean nothing to God. We can do nothing without God. And God doesn't want us to struggle through this life alone, bellies empty, starving for justice. God asks us to walk with him to seek justice with him and with each other. Now, I cannot tell you specifically what this looks like in your own life, but I would invite you to tell me and to tell each other, how does each of you walk humbly with God? How do you seek the justice that you ache for? What do you do when you leave this place that is scandalous when compared to the values of this world? Is it in your annual giving? Is it the work you do as a teacher or lawyer? Share with one another. Share your stories of how you walk with God and respond to God's call. And in that sharing, be reminded that we do not walk alone. We walk with the body of Christ together, supporting one another, we are humbly bringing God's kingdom into the world. Amen.